Hello and welcome to another episode of That's So Random, a random movie podcast. I'm Heath Lambert. It's a wonderful day. Think back of all the movies I've watched for this show, had to watch for this show. Mostly things no one has ever heard of. Certainly nothing anyone would call my favorite movie. Uh, I mean, It's a Wonderful Life. Sure. Clue, maybe. But this episode's movie... A real humdinger. Probably our first, well, other than It's a Wonderful Life, probably our first Oscar nominee or winner. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, from 2001. A phenomenal movie, and one which, usually because I do movies that most people haven't even heard of, I get really detailed and go through the plot and super, you know. But... I think most people have seen this, so I think we'll do more of a sort of a broad overview for this movie, because, I mean, if you haven't seen it, um, what have you been doing here? But my guest for this episode, and this isn't my favorite movie, and it's probably not yours, would it make my top ten? I don't know. But he is the host of a lovely little show called My Favorite Movie Is, where everything is positive all of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Larry Freed, how are you, sir? Man, I'm doing so good. That's a great introduction for my show. You know, the world, uh, the world, especially the world in general, but especially the world of film and film critique could use some positivity, I think, these days. So uh, I'm, I, if that is the one thing my show would be known for, I will, I will take it in stride. Well, you get to have people on and it's literally, what is your favorite movie? And it's people gushing about why they love, and it isn't always, you know, it's not, it's it's very non-judgmental. It's a pretty wide like you did, you did Scott Pilgrim. You did the first sure. Texas Chainsaw. You did. It's not yeah. like all French New Wave, you know. So it's not <laughs> it's not pretentious or. Man, look, man, the day that we get a French New Wave movie on the show, I will be shocked. I I doubt that we will ever be covering anything like that. But I mean, I am I am totally open to that too. I I, I love it. My favorite my favorite uh, parts of working on my show is when I I invite a guest onto the show and I say, okay, what movie do you want? And they give me a movie that I thought I'd never cover on my show. And that's like, like Texas Chainsaw was definitely one that I never thought I would cover. And I'm really glad I did. I, I hadn't even, I had not seen the film before we covered it too. So like, not only did I get to experience a great film for the first time, but I got to talk about it with someone who was really passionate about it. And, um, yeah, it's very, very, uh, in our first season, we had a really eclectic mix of some of the most well-known popular movies and then a bunch of more obscure oddity picks that, uh, you know, people got to discover. <laughs> Daisies. <laughs> yeah, dude, talk about art. That's a Czech, a Czech experimental film. So it's like between that, that, uh, you know, comparing that to the French New Wave is like apples and chairs, you know, it's like yeah. a completely different beast. So, but yeah, I love it. I enjoy your show very much. Uh, everybody should go check it out. Because like I said, it's very, po- my show doesn't get to be positive very often because I have to be, <laughs> I have to watch garbage movies and then make fun of them. So it's hard to be positive about that. Every once in a while though, I'll find a little gem that I'm like, oh, here's something on Tubi I've never heard of. And it turned out to be pretty good. Like this is our home or keep the change or things like that. So right, right. occasionally, but oh, today. Today we're talking Lord of the Rings. I remember super walking out of the theater, seeing this, and turning to my family and going, there's probably a better movie than that, but I can't think of it. <laughs> In the moment, I was so... It's good, man. It's so good. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, it, it's become a part of, like, 
just my cultural lexicon, like my cultural backbone, just like there's, there is nothing else quite like it. And there, there will never be anything quite like it. Um, it's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's almost, I mean, we're going to spend a whole podcast talking about it, but it's truly hard to put into words just how effective this movie was for me and a lot of people of both, of, of both of our generations and just, uh, just the film zeitgeist as a whole. For sure. I wish, I mean, you said there wouldn't ever be anything like it, and that's probably true. But I remember when it came out and it was so successful, I was like, okay, here we go. We know that Hollywood wants to, like, copy everything that's popular, so I'm finally going to get my Dragonlance trilogy movie, right? No, <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> that didn't happen. But... They didn't, they didn't really latch on to try to... I think they looked at it and went, well, nobody but Peter Jackson could even try to do this, so why bother? <laughs> like, yeah, they tried to do... Uh, they've tried to do things like it in the past, but for reasons we could get into you know, later on in this discussion, uh, n- there have been very few adaptations that have come close to reaching its success. And if it has reached a success, it has... I would argue it has reached success for different reasons. I would argue that really there is, you could count on one hand the amount of adaptations that reach the same level of success through the means of which Lord of the Rings found uh, success and how it still holds up today. For sure. And you'll always have, you'll have the, like the hardcore Tolkien reader fans who like are still going to nitpick this. Like where's Tom Bombadil? Like, come on, man. Do you not see what he just did? The amazing thing Dude, you just want, like... If, if this was a Tolkien adaptation, we'd spend, like, 100 minutes just, like, with shots of flowers, you know? Like, we can't... We cannot be trusting Tolkien on this. That's the thing. And I'm going to lose some serious nerd cred here, which nobody... I mean, you can't see it. My room is wall-to-wall bookshelves of books and graphic novels. I'm, I mean, my cred is secure, but I... I have tried... I have a big Lord of the Rings collection that's got all the books in it. I have tried to read The Hobbit over the course of my life three times and every time I've gotten about 80 pages in and thrown it across the room because I don't need four pages to describe what a mountain looks like sir I know what a mountain looks like if you want to take a page to tell me what a troll looks like because those aren't real I've never seen one but a mountain <laughs> come on man I got things to do here I can't do that's it I've the, tried that's why Tolkien, Tolkien is perfect for film because he is so visual so much of his books are just description of deeply visual concepts so you can you can take the book and shave off about half of the book itself by just having the audience experience a visual thing in front of them that Tolkien was trying and again no visual image will ever fully be able to capture what he's talking about for obvious reasons because it's so detailed but you you do just by being a film itself you do a, a good amount of the legwork I kind of want to make it sound like I'm some Neanderthal. <laughs> like, I don't want to be the guy who brags that he read Proust, but I read Proust. I enjoyed it. But something about Tolkien, I just can't. I can't with the, it takes, it's, it's too tough, much. dude. It's tough. I have only read through the Lord of the Rings once. That's I, it. I will, I will do it at some point. I will soldier on it. <laughs> but Get the audiobook. Grab an audiobook and go through it that way. Go. It'll probably be more engaging that way. I wonder if Ian McKellen ever read one. Christopher Lee, maybe. I he was way he into that. In he has to be involved in one of them. Yeah, let's let's get into. Yeah, again, we don't need to touch too much on the plot, but we can definitely talk about all of the perfect casting. We can talk about 
visual effects that because we think of 2001 like oh of course that wasn't that long ago but watch the movies from 2001 and see how the special effects don't hold up the special effects in this movie hold up like crazy yeah it was it it's pretty crazy i agree like it it's you know something that i like to talk about with a lot of people and it's sort of a it's a take that i feel like maybe a lot of people may have but they don't really know how to articulate very well is that there sort of is this photorealism trend in visual effects that is such the rage, you know, to uh, so many people are so obsessed with utilizing visual effects to create things that, you know, to create things that we would never be able to see in the real world, but from the realest possible sense of it. Uh, and, you know, really trying to, or, and that, or that being said, create elements of the real world that they don't have access to, but that still exist in the real world. So you have like examples like Life of Pi, which was like a hybrid movie where they had the tiger in that film was like partially visual effects, partially a real tiger. And so though that's like a photorealism thing. That's like, you're trying to capture something that exists, but you just don't have in front of you. And the problem is that I think that a lot of film people or film fans or filmmakers tend to just extrapolate that to be all visual effects. Like all visual effects should be realistic and all visual effects should look real and believable. And like, I, I consider this film to be a great example of why I think that that argument is a bit reductive because visual effects are simply meant to convey emotions or just convey a, an idea or just move the storytelling along. And so, you know, you have scenes like Galadriel with Frodo when, when Frodo offers her the ring and Galadriel just goes nuts, just like, you know, full, you know, dark voice. Her, her face is being contorted in these weird ways. And like, I'm not going to say that the visual effects look real. Like they don't like, obviously nothing about this looks realistic uh, or photo real, but, the effects are still great because they make you feel something. That scene is like shocking when you watch it for the first time. And uh, it's a shame that apparently the 4K transfers of these movies like kind of oversharpen yeah. them a little bit because those effects, when you watch them in front of you, it's like, it is truly, and this goes, and it goes for the rest of the trilogy. You know, the visual effects work in this movie uh, is so incredible because for all of the work they do to create realistic looking environments, there are so many other effects that are happening and it's really just, just incredible craftsmanship, you know, all around. Well, also, I mean, and Bilbo's weird little transformation when he gets like yeah. that jump scare that, you know, yeah. the Balrog is, I remember the first time that thing stepped out when I saw it in the theater and I went, yeah. what the hell? I've never seen anything I mean, like that before. Gollum, the Gollum for the few Everybody times that we see too. him. Yeah. You know, it's, it is, it really, it, 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 it's just such great craftsmanship and it's such a great mix of like, you know, obviously there are some parts of this movie, some of the visual effects, just like in the, obviously there is a lot of practical work, but you know, there were obviously some, you know, minor prosthetic visual effects done you know probably during battle sequences or when you're creating these big environments you know like uh like rivendell or the shire or places like that but they're very much in the background um but when they do use the visual effects it just is so impactful you and like with uh gandalf when gandalf you know don't take me for a conjurer of cheap tricks you know like that 
moment is crazy. Like that's a major emotional moment in the film. And if they tried to make it look like real or like I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, um, Sauron and Saruman and, and everything in Mordor, you know, all the effects going on in there too. It's like, they're just, they're just creating. And th that speaks to one of the greatest parts about this movie in general is that all of these choices speak to the emotional energy of the movie, which is so unique and has still yet to really be captured anywhere else. It just makes you feel the most emotions, like all of these all choices of and visual effects. And that is why to me, they hold up, they still hold up super well and why I, I love revisiting the films because every single time they never fail to grab me. That's true. And there's also, I mean, it's also predominantly so much practical effects too. the sound of the kind of the hidden things that you don't think about as you're watching it. And you're like, yeah, how did they make Elijah Wood so small? And then, you know, you watch the behind the scenes, you're like, oh, it's because he was like 10 feet further from the camera. It's such a simple, basic trick, but it fools your brain in a way that you don't even think about. And they had to do that for like the whole movie all the time. It's so incredible. It's fun to it's fun to be watching those scenes, knowing that visual trick that they did and sort of thinking to themselves like, Thinking to yourself, excuse me, like, okay, like, oh, okay, this is probably why they did that, and he's probably over there. And then you think about that scene where uh, Frodo jumps into Gandalf's arms. So we had to do, like, a sort of, like, whoa, like a, like a sort of, like, start from one end and jump to him in the other end. And it, you can sort of see the visual trick breaking in there, but, like, it's so impressive that it's there at all that you just, like, you can't help but be, but be incredibly impressed by the whole thing. And it's always seamless. You never, you know, you don't really notice it when it's, happening it's one of those things where it's yeah i think if you're not if you're not kind of keen and up on filmmaking tricks and stuff when you watch that behind the scenes stuff you're like oh i didn't even know you could do that i didn't know cameras worked that like the forced perspective thing mm -hmm. sort of and that's to me that's what special effects should be is partially seamless partially to recreate things that we literally can't because they don't exist don't use it for cgi blood flying you know just get real blood <laughs> not real blood but you know what i mean squibs and yeah, stuff no, for sure. or something like like the marvel movies get bagged on for you know it's all it's all cgi it's all green screen but captain america civil war when they're fighting at that airport i had no clue until i watched the special features on the blu-ray that they weren't at an actual airport yeah and neither did anyone else so don't tell me you did <laughs> you know what i mean like that's crazy yeah, I mean, the Marvel movies do so much visual effects work. And, and like these days, you know, not to sound like an old geezer, even at the age of 24, but, you know, these days in the in the studio environment, uh, you know, visual effects and blue screen and green screen and compositing and all these things are just standard. Like every every almost every movie made through a studio system has some sort of visual effects work being done, even, you know like ironically enough the movies that you think would have the least amount of visual effects like something like gone girl has an incredible amount of visual effects work because david fincher is like crazy into manipulating environments through visual effects um and not even in obvious ways like the winklevoss twins and social network like there's a featurette where you can you can see that david fincher does vfx through like the windows in houses like he will put environments in windows that are like there for like two seconds in a shot but he's so meticulous so like so many films utilize visual effects in such an important way and marvel just because of the content is forced to create so much of their world through visual effects and i'll admit many times they do it incredibly well i you know I'm a, I'm a fan of the marvel films and uh 
they really do transport you. But but what makes Lord of the Rings so special is that there is so much practical work being done right in front of your eyes that the visual effects work and the practical work and that and the special effects work, you know, the, the stuff that was done right in right in frame, they all work together and coalesce very very well. And I think part of that is because the a lot of the visual effects work, besides for a few obvious moments, is really more so in the background. It's to elevate the practical effects that are going on. And if it's not, it's a moment that is like meant to strike you down. I also think of like obviously we're talking about fellowship, but in the two in the two towers, uh, you know, when Gandalf um, reappears. Uh, you know, as as Gandalf the White, you know, that is another moment of just like incredible visual effects uh, mastery. And those moments, visual effects, when they're very forward, are used as a tool to heighten the emotions of the story. And Gollum, I think the reason Gollum is so successful is because he is such an emotionally captivating character. And so that's why his entire persona as a visual effects character works so well, because he is such an other in comparison to so many of the other characters that, um, and, you know, his entire performance is just, you know, is, is just mind bogglingly good even today, even though that was like, you know, motion capture was used, was nowhere near used as often back then as it is now. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Andy Circus, for. Thank you. Honestly, give that. the man, give the man his damn Oscar already. I cannot understand how, we still live in a in a time. I mean, Andy Serkis has won awards for his other performances, and he's won some honor, honorary awards. I'm sure. I hope, but it's about time that we that we give that man his due. Reinvented the wheel almost, in a way. Ab absolutely, absolutely. Um, how much do you think that Stuart Townsend wakes up every morning and looks in the mirror and just shakes his head because <laughs> I don't know if you know the. I mean, you probably do the backstory of Stuart Townsend was supposed to be Aragorn and he didn't want to live in New Zealand for a couple of years so he passed on it and Viggo Mortensen got it. Viggo Mortensen became a movie star and Stuart, Stuart Townsend became the bad Lestat. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I wonder. Yeah, man. Honestly, everybody has those movies. A lot of people have those movies where, uh, you know, they, they're like, oh, why didn't I take that part? You know, like, I, you know, there's the infamous story about Will Smith. Will Smith was offered the part of Neo in The Matrix, mm -hmm. and he, and he, and he uh, passed on it. And, uh, you know, look where we're at now. Now that's, but here's the thing. So many of those moments, those characters end up going on to be iconic, portrayed by the actors who end up portraying them. And so Neo would not be the Neo that we know today if it wasn't for Keanu Reeves. And Aragorn would not be the Aragorn that we all love today if it wasn't for Viggo Mortensen. Which, by the way, it's crazy to think that Viggo Mortensen has almost sort of outlived, or not outlived, but like his career is so massive and incredible that Lord of the Rings ends up being like kind of a, a pin on his radar, a, a ping on his radar. You know, you think about movies like eastern promises and captain fantastic and you know just recently with green book say what you want about green book but the guy got a lot of praise for it you know the guy you know it was a, it was a very pot it was one of his most popular performances and like that goes with a lot of the casting so many of the casting choices in this movie you look at the those people's careers now and it's like it, it they were so good that it was just a ping it was just like a thing on their resume you look at like elijah wood who has become sort of this weird indie horror darling oh, yeah. now 
Uh, you look at Kate Blanchett, who's a certified movie star. Like now, she, you know, now she's she's like the coldest, you know, most piercing uh, starlet or actress that you can get in a in a movie right now. Um, you know, and then you have, you know, Liv Tyler, Ian McKellen, all of these characters, all of these actors who are just so. I mean, Orlando Bloom. I mean, John Rhys Davies. I mean, all of these people. Like it's just it's just another piece of the puzzle. And it's and for them in their careers, which just is mind boggling because all of these it, it's kind of weird because like I just it's it's weird because I find that with a lot of these actors and actresses, people don't think about Lord of the Rings when they think of these actors and actresses. Yeah, if you say Viggo Mortensen to me now, I think of History of Violence. <laughs> yeah, History of Violence. Yeah, that's another great. It's the first one I think of, and then I'm like, oh right, he was Aragorn too. Yeah, like I'm still trying to parse exactly like my take on all of this, but it's just it's so bizarre to me that all of these actors, I mean Hugo Weaving, right? All of these actors are giving phenomenal performances in this movie, just like fully embodying the characters that they're given. Like to to the to the T. I, I was talking to a friend about this earlier. Like I think one of the reasons this movie works so well is because everybody is a hundred percent committing to the material. Everybody. I'm watching these scenes with with Gandalf and Bilbo, and I'm watching a hobbit talk to a wizard, have a conversation in a hut. But like that conversation is being portrayed by two of the greatest living actors of all time. And it's a conversation about mortality and and like there's 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 so much weight behind every line in that conversation. And you know, obviously, Bilbo's adventure in The Hobbit is is heavily suggested in these scenes, and for people, and you know, op there are plenty of people who will, who, you know, watch these movies who have no idea about The Hobbit or have never seen The Hobbit or don't, aren't familiar with the story. But they don't need to be because it's those those details about The Hobbit are not what makes that scene work. What makes that scene work is that it feels like there is a history between these two characters that have binded them together, like inseparably, and you just have two of the greatest actors of all time wearing these ridiculous costumes that just seem to fit them perfectly. Like they're, they are having this discussion. And I think that there are so many other instances in history in which this would not have worked. Like, you know, if you don't have the right actors and the right director and the perfect production design and the perfect music and the perfect script, if all of these moments do not like coalesce together, then like, the moment doesn't work at all, but this movie just captures the lightning in the bottle so much of all of these actors fully committing to the roles in which they are given and selling all of the emotional truth and honesty of the movie. And it's just wild that these performances are so great. And yet all of these actors have gone on to have these incredibly illustrious careers that are so, so far outside of the films and not obviously not every actor in the, in the movies has gone is like a household name like you know sean astin despite arguably giving my favorite performance in all of the films is certainly not an elijah wood or an ian mckellen but but like it's just a part of me thinks that maybe this movie just came at a perfect time for all of these actors before they maybe hit a specific stride in their careers where they found new life in these other roles and other parts there was like an not an innocence but like a novelty to all of them in a certain way that allowed them to just escape into these characters. Because when I watch, when I think about Hugo Weaving, I think of like the Red Skull, you know, just because 
Marvel and new age and I'm young. But then I see him in this movie and I'm like, oh my God, that's Hugo Weaving. I totally forgot that was Hugo Weaving there for a second. And he's given an amazing performance, but it's because it's not Hugo Weaving, it's someone else. They embody the character so much that you don't even <laughs> remember that these actors are other actors and have had other roles. Like I saw Kate Blanchett in Nightmare Alley recently, fantastic performance from her in that. And then I see her as Galadriel here and I'm like, oh my God, Kate Blanchett was Galadriel. Do we all just, I think we all just like kind of forget about this because they're just, they're so good. That's how good they are. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it also shows the trust that you have to have in your director. Because <laughs> imagine you're standing on set, you're Ian McKellen, you're the most decorated, you know, British <laughs> stage act, you know, and you're there with Elijah Wood, who's standing 15 feet behind you because of the camera trick you have to do. You're wearing a silly big hat in a, in a, in a tiny little thing, and you're looking at Peter Jackson, the guy who made Frighteners, <laughs> and going, which I'm the love, I'm not making fun of Frighteners, but, you know, he wasn't known for, like, this is not his kind of thing necessarily. And so you kind of just have to look at him and go, whatever you say, Peter, if you say you're going to make this work, you're going to make it work, because what else can I do? Because <laughs> like, this is all crazy what we're doing right now, so... I'm praying to God that you know what you're doing. Yeah, no, it's, it is actually pretty wild because, I mean, you're right. Peter Jackson was not pegged as the kind of guy who would do a movie like this. And now that's all that he's known for. That's all he's associated with. The man cannot escape uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. And now, especially after all the debacle that was The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. um, we'll we'll know, get into that, he, I think. <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he can't escape this legacy. And that's kind of the double, that's kind of the the two sides of the coin, you know, with a, with, with a sensation like Lord of the Rings, you know? Like, he's known for one of the greatest film trilogies of all time. And yet, he's never quite managed to escape uh, the legacy of, uh, of those of those films. Although now I think more recently, Peter Jackson has kind of turned his focus to documentaries and he's worked on a, he did, they shall not grow old, which was a, a revolutionary documentary in terms of uh, colorizing world war two footage. And then he most recently did get back, which was the, the Beatles documentary, uh, the, the mini series that, you know, kind of was had a, had its moment in the sun on Disney plus. And so I think he is slowly finding himself a new, a new niche or something else he can do, but you know, he will always be remembered as like the crazy kid who made, you know, who got Lord of the Rings, you know, to happen. Yeah. He tried with stuff like he tried the lovely bones, but I think people were kind of like, nah, we're good. <laughs> we're give us more <laughs> hobbits. But then he gave us more hobbits and it was too much hobbits and we didn't want it. So, well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but there are, you know, those films, it's so difficult talking about those films because, you know, I'm such a big fan of, of these three films and, and the Hobbit films in general were just such a mess in terms of production. Well, the problem yeah. is, is that it's three films. I mean, you already, you had the Lord of the Rings, yeah. each yeah. book, which is a thicker book than the Hobbit is, got one yeah. three hour movie. And then you gave the Hobbit then, the thinnest one. And then they got one. a four hour movie. And then they each got a four hour movie. You know, like I could see it as two, but once you expanded it to three, it's like, what it, right. it was what originally supposed to be two. It was originally supposed to be two. It was supposed to be and Guillermo, then, Guillermo del Toro. So that that also. I also feel bad. I feel so bad for him because it was very clear that he um, 
that he loved that project so much and when when they disbanded it it was very heartbreaking for him yeah he keeps not getting to make his passion projects he wanted to do the hobbit he didn't get to do it he wants to do hellboy 3 they won't let him do it he wants to do at the at the mountains of madness which oh my i would kill i would kill for that and they won't, they won't well, well that apparently that is kind of in the process like they're working on making that happen but now he's also doing uh his you know his stop motion pinocchio adaptation yeah that's true uh which is going to be phenomenal it looks amazing already my, I, I guess i have like a general point about the movies that, that i that, that i sort of that i sort of realized after rewatching this and this might have been what like my fourth or fifth time seeing the film um it might be it's probably more than that <laughs> uh, i don't know if i want to admit how many times i've seen this film. well people always um, say especially like on my favorite movies people always say like oh i've watched this movie a hundred times you probably haven't a hundred times is a lot of like people say that but you've probably seen it 30 times maybe like my favorite movie is the crow i have not seen it a hundred (laughs) times that's a lot well that's honestly that's good i I, i've talked about this on my show a little bit but i am a firm believer that serially rewatching your favorite movies does more harm than good um, because I think that it, it sort of desensitizes you to the wonder and the beauty of, of the movie. Uh, you know, if I knew every, all my favorite movies that well, I wouldn't be able to sort of, I, I think so much about a movie is not necessarily about the movie itself, but your experience with it and the wonder and surprise that you feel while you watch it. And you need to retain part of that for every movie that you see. And so I don't, you know, I, I I don't watch The Lord of the Rings in full all the time. So it's probably right that I've probably only seen it in full sitting down five or six times. But I watch scenes over and over and over and over, like certain scenes because they comfort me so much. And some scenes I just want to just see the wonder. I mean, the Battle at Helm's Deep. How many times have I watched that over and over just to marvel at it? Um, but anyway, the, the the point I was trying to make before is that this movie is so genuine. It is so emotionally genuine. And I think I think that we are slowly reaching a point in just in film criticism in general, as a new generation sort of starts to, to be taking over film criticism. Uh, we're starting to focus a lot more on sort of emotional positivity and emotional sincerity. I think that for a a long period of time, emotional sincerity was equated to be, you know, weakness or silly. And I think that, you know, not necessarily unrightfully so at certain points, but I think that these movies have become the butt of a lot of jokes, even from fans, because there are some moments that are just so... They are very emotionally charged. You know, there are how many shots of this movie are there where it's just the face of the character in just awe or disbelief or shock or the the most happiness or the most sadness. It is it is an incredibly emotionally charged movie. And I think that some people are not fully prepared to ingest all of that when they're watching it. You know, so many fantasy epics that we watch now are like super serious. They take themselves incredibly seriously. They're dark, they're dramatic. I mean, you know, the only thing I can think of, the only fantasy epic I can think of that comes close to reaching the popularity of something like Lord of the Rings would be something like Game of Thrones. But Game of Thrones is like, if, if uh if if the lord of the rings is jekyll then game of thrones is hyde in the sense that like like game of thrones is like the most dramatic at times depressing grounded epic 
you know, and despite the fact that it has dragons and, uh, you know, all of this, all this crazy stuff. Now, granted, I haven't seen that much Game of Thrones. I've only seen a season or two of it, so I, I don't know it in full. But I, I've heard a lot about it, and you know, I don't think you just watch a few clips from it, and you can tell there's a very a lot of aesthetic differences between that and something like Lord of the Rings. But the thing about Lord of the Rings that as a fantasy epic is so unique and so powerful and something that has still, in my view, never really been fully recaptured is that emotional sincerity, is that energy, is the love that all the characters have for each other. It's just like, you know, like, I remember back in the day, you'd have like, oh, I mean, back in the day, I'm not, I'm, I'm very young, but like when I was in my teens, you know, I would read about Lord of the Rings and how many, you know, jokes would, maybe be, be would be made about frodo and sam and like you know their relationship and it's like oh what are you in love or something you know and now we're in an era where you know queer film critics are reading this movie in queer subtext and it's like legitimate like people are like giving it that reading and i i think that's kind of a beautiful thing because i mean that's just one microcosm of it but these movies are not afraid to just be so emotionally rich in all of its characters and it should be because the stakes are the highest the, these are the highest stakes you could possibly get for a story the entire world that they know is in danger of being destroyed like i feel like with storytelling a lot of people keep their distance from it because you know it's important to keep a, a, a you know it's important to remember that film and storytelling is artifice and it's not real and you shouldn't fully give in yourself for it to it but it's still pretty crazy like you know you can get into that kind of drama like the whole world is going to end and all of these characters have so much to prove there's so much stakes like frodo wants to prove that he can bring the ring to mordor and that he can do this by himself sam needs to prove that he will never leave frodo's side and that he can be a proper companion for frodo at the behest of gandalf you know aragorn wants to prove that he is that he is a strong noble warrior and the rightful heir to the throne right like or eventually he realizes that he needs to prove that he is rightful heir to the throne right like all these characters and i mean that's not even that's just fellowship i'm not even talking about two towers or return of the king when pippin suddenly gets an arc you know like <laughs> there is there all of these characters have so much behind them and i just felt like for a long time these movies kind of got mocked by people because they were silly or over the top but in reality it is that emotional sincerity and energy that makes these movies incredible like to watch because by taking it as seriously as it does, it gives the entire world that sort of weight and untruth that a lot of fantasy epics just kind of ignore. I feel like a lot of fantasy movies are just, we're here to have fun and ooh, magic and swords. Ooh, you know, like fun times. And like, I got nothing wrong with a fun fantasy adventure. Like nothing wrong with that. But if you, but these movies strike a chord with people and these are so, there's so much depth to all of these movies, especially in Fellowship. And I think it's because all of the characters are so well-crafted, all the performances are so committed, and Peter Jackson and the writers and everybody involved is fully attuned to the emotional weight of everything. You know, those music cues, Howard Shore's impeccable score for this movie. And like, you just see, like, I, like the, the, when Gandalf falls into, uh, falls into the pit when they're in um, the mines, uh, or not, not when they're, or that's when they go into the mines, right? The mines of Moria. Uh, when they and uh, and Gandalf falls and it's just you just have a moment with the music where everybody is like we have lost a great leader and 
they fully commit to it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sad too. I, I buy it. I believe it. And like, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, whatever. Like, this is silly or whatever. Like, no, this is honest and real. And I'm glad that we're at a point now where a lot of people can recognize that and be a lot more respectful of that and with that. And there are a lot of movies in which I think people would have called silly 20 years ago that when you look at it now in a new context, you might take it a little with a little bit more weight. Um, that earnest emotional earnestness has just as much prestige to it as something grounded and dark and real, you know, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I did that. That's why I love these movies so much because they emotionally are very resonant for me and they, they are fully committed to their own uh, emotional energy. Yeah, it's easy to look at them and go, oh, look at these silly little guys with the hairy toes. But the, if you're not almost crying when Sam, who hates water and cannot swim, <laughs> is going to jump in the river to get yes. because his best friend is leaving without him and it's not going to happen. I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. A promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Oh, Sam. That's, you know, and then jumping ahead to Return of the King, forget it. When he's, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. Get out of here. Come on. That is the most... I mean, the queer coding, the excuse me, the queer coding thing is very interesting. But also, there's also an uptick in the way people talk about like we need like male friendship on film that isn't like antagonistic yes. and Fight Club and you know. Yes. And so this, I mean, Lord of the Rings is it, man. There is no better like male friendship, platonic, you know, of just like that's no, my best friend, and it's Frodo ride or die. Like like Gandalf and Bilbo have a great friendship that I that I love. Um, Pippin and Merry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's uh, Aragorn and Boromir in Fellowship. That final moment when and during Boromir's death, like I'm like I'm like about to cry. Like that moment is so beautiful to me. Uh, a beautiful moment of catharsis w- with these characters who have had a conflict. Boromir is probably my favorite character in in the movie in Fellowship of the Ring because his character is so resonant and real and honest. And that moment just solidifies it for me. Yeah, male platonic friendship. I mean, Gimli and Legolas, you know, like just every, there's so much of it there and it's so, it's so resonant. It's so impactful. Definitely. God, I'm getting choked up, like thinking about like, like, are we going to, are we going to battle as a, as a dwarf and an elf or whatever he says line when he's like, how about as a friend? I'm like, oh, I'm like, yay. Yes. They're friends now. Like. Oh, I get so I get emotional thinking about it. I lo- I just I love these movies so much. Yeah, and I mean the comparison to Game of Thrones is there's a joy to Lord of the Rings, even when you know here at the yes, end of yes. the world, you know you're still my best friend. Like, but there's a joy to it at all, kind of at all times, even in the darkest, you know, a light in the darkest place. Uh, Game of Thrones does not have. There's nothing joyful about Game of Thrones. Joy and it, wonder. But... Joy and yes. wonder, I would say. Like, every moment these characters are like, <gasps> like, they are surprised. They are just as surprised as we would be with, like, the Balrog or with the eagles in Return of the King or with the with the um, the tree monsters. What are they? I don't remember. The Ents. The Ents. Thank you. The Ents in Two Towers. Just like, ah! like, you know, every surprise, shock, moment of wonder, excitement, like, they're feeling it 
way more than an audience member would inherently feel that because we're all so jaded and we all know that it's not real or whatever. So they are perfect channel that we can channel. We can get excited for what's on screen because they, they get excited for what's on screen. Now, what are your thoughts on the sort of the trilogy as a whole, as far as, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, Return of the King has nine different endings and it won't stop and it just keeps going. I could have taken 20 more minutes of that. Honestly, because that's <laughs> it's great. I, I still think Fellowship is my favorite, just because it has that sense of discovery, and this is this is yeah. new. I've never seen this before. Two Towers is the one for me that actually kind of did. It's a great movie, and I love it. But that's the one that I remember watching it in the theater and kind of looking at my watch a little bit and being like, "Oh wow, there's 45 minutes left." <laughs> like that one feels a little long. Yeah. But otherwise, I feel like they just fly by. Yeah, I don't know. I I I often struggle with stories and and movies like this. You know, I'm a I'm a very devout believer in sort of the single film experience. You can go into a theater, you watch a movie, and you're done, and you're out, and you can just leave and talk about it. And you know, I I find that experience so deeply valuable. But I do think there are a few exceptions to, uh, to this rule. Movies that you know are meant to be experienced as sort of this one continuous story over the course of multiple films. And I think that Lord of the Rings is just sort of one of those few exceptions where like, I am okay with the fact that not everything in this movie is going to fully line up with everything in its own movie because they have to set up, you know, they have to have all these things ready for the, the further chapters. I, my instinct is to say that fellowship is my favorite purely because of that idea of discovery, as you mentioned. And, because I think it is the most contained in terms of arc. You know, the story is, you know, the there the fellowship happens and then the fellowship breaks and Frodo has to learn that he needs to be independent and take things on for himself. And Sam learns that he has to bring himself to be with Frodo despite, you know, all the challenges and, you know, he, that he has to be that partner for him. It, it's a It's a really, really compelling cliffhanger for all of the characters involved. And there are stakes and stuff like that. So Fellowship, I would say, is my favorite. But man, Return of the King, dude, the climax of Return of the King is like, if you want to know how to like properly cross cut a crazy jumbled mess of a story, oh, yeah. just watch Return of the King. Because like the pacing in that climax is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Every the, No momentum is lost. Literally not one moment. Every single cut to the other story is great. And it's because all of the stories that are that are that are cut between in, in during that climax are compelling and awesome and make their own would make their own movie. But then you have them being cut between in a way in which each cut is is conserving tension in a way that is so valuable for a climax that is so packed with characters and it's like almost for that reason alone that return of the king is like i i struggle to say fellowship is my favorite because return of the sure. king has that climax that is just so palpable i i do agree with you that the two towers does struggle probably the most out of all of the movies because i i do think that the the ends with mary and pippin do really drag the movie down and i think that that is a consequence of the fact that when you have so many characters and you're going to spend so much time with all of those characters and then introduce new characters, yeah. like it's a really hard wire to, to tow or line to tow. 
you know, because in screenwriting and in filmmaking, we like to say, you know, you should have your main character and all the other characters should like, you know, like the character web, right? Like every character should be an extension of the main character and should represent the main character learning something or, or furthering something about themselves. But in reality, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in Lord of the Rings that has nothing to do with Frodo. You know, like for a while, I used to think that Fellowship really had two main characters. It had Frodo and it had Aragorn. And really, those are the two main characters of the story because there are there's a lot that happens with Aragorn, politically speaking, that has nothing really to do with Frodo at all. Or, you know, it has minimally to do with Frodo. You know, he's there and he plays a role, but it's not really the same. And I do think that as we move further and further along in the story that those branches begin to split more and more. And so Two Towers, I think, struggles the most because it's doing all the work to... to It's doing all the work with each individual story. And, like, there's only so much of film, tem literally temporally speaking, like, just sitting and watching a movie over the course of three hours. Like, there's only so much that can really retain that can retain me as an audience member and so the two towers is in my opinion the weakest of the three because it does sort of i i don't consider it like its own complete experience like i would never sit down and watch the two towers like you know by right, its, right. on its own i would only watch the two towers if i was watching fellowship the two towers and return of the king and ironically i would watch return of the king by itself like i would because that climax is in and of itself such a compelling thing but I don't think the Two Towers has anything quite like that. Um, and so uh, that's where I, of course, besides for Riddles in the Dark, or not Riddles in the Dark, but like, uh, you know, Gollum, the incorporation of Gollum's character uh, is really the main thing about Two Towers that keeps me there. But speaking of, in terms of the theatrical cuts, because I have seen the extended cuts, but speaking in terms of the theatrical cuts, I definitely think Two Towers struggles a little bit. And uh, in a way that, like, honestly, I don't really... I don't really put the it, 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 I don't put two towers in contention with fellowship or return because it just does sort of feel like that middle if it, it does feel like the middle sibling you know in yeah. a certain way definitely I think the only other thing I wanted to touch on really was uh, we were talking about production design but just how cool everything looks and I know the artists who worked with Tolkien back in the day designed kind of a lot of this stuff but they had to flesh it out when you know what a workshop and Peter Jackson and all that to make it real and everything from the Balrog to Sauron, like just the design of things, the Eye of Sauron, everything is just so very, very cool, but also very, it can't be in another movie. Like you look at a design and you're like, oh, that's a total, like that's a Lord of the Rings thing, right? <laughs> you can, like I'm seeing the trailer for this new Lord of the Rings TV show and I'm like, oh, they kept all of the designs from, it's not like its own thing. It's like it must be in the same because all of the armor designs and everything, the weapon designs are all the same as from the movies. And I feel like they're super like iconic. Now, I know this is the movie that like launched a thousand memes, but mm -hmm. I think it also launched, you know, some other things. You have you have uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League is ripping off this fight, the fight with Sauron at the beginning. I mean, that's he lifts that whole cloth <laughs> and puts it in his like so it's done. It's encouraged and inspired a lot of other things mostly good mm -hmm. yeah it, it it really does feel like every choice made in this movie was one that was made with purpose i do think that every single choice made during this movie is one with so much intention and i think that the the designs of everything really help to make that possible there's so much detail 
yeah, we can pretty much uh, wrap it up. Any sort of final thoughts or takeaways from... Um, I'm not going to hit you with the questions that you always ask your, <laughs> uh, your guests as far as favorite scene and all <laughs> that's that. A, that's you know, a lot of questions. A perfect pair, yeah. Just, yeah, just a final, any kind of final message to people about Fellowship of the Ring. There is so much intention in every choice and there's so much detail in all of it. And, you know, I, as much as there is so much hard work put into all these things, I can't, I cannot, you know, deny that there is a certain amount of magic, you know, that it takes to make these things coalesce and fit together. You know, I think it's, uh, I think that it, that part of it is a matter of just getting the right people in the right place at the right time, people who work together well and fully are on the same wavelength. And also maybe people who aren't on the same wavelength, but manage to work together well and just make something great. But, you know, I, I think about, there are so many artistic choices I think about. I think about like when they get into, when they meet Galadriel, the coloring during that scene, the misty blue colorization of everything. I think about um, Bilbo Baggins' house and all of the details scattered all over that messy place. Uh, uh, you know, I think about Gandalf's, beard i think about just how dirty and like like just like hairy it looks and how it like looks like the man it has had it for years i i think about all of the armor all of the weapon choices i think about the choreography just like there you know there you can study this film forever like you could you could really go through every single scene and every single detail and pull apart just why these choices work so well and it helps that it's also really freaking cool. And, you know, like all of them feel like they just like, you know, they're, they're, they're so cool. Cause they feel like it's, they're all owning them. Like they're all owning these choices that they're like, they're full again, that full commitment to those choices. I think especially about, you know, the fight choreo, watching the hobbits, like, you know, like you know, fight those orcs and fellowship. I'm like, yeah, like you get them, the hobbits. Like I was like, yeah, the hobbits even get like their own cool stuff. Like they get their own, like they, they have, you know, their own uh, wardrobe and they have their own fight style and all this stuff. It's like, it's super cool. It's just all the detail. You can mine it uh, for forever and ever. But yeah, in, in terms of like final thoughts, I just, I'm glad that I could be here. I'm glad that I could talk about it. Uh, you know, I, I aspire one day to cover the Lord of the Rings on my show because there are so many people who it's like their all-time favorites. And I think that there is so much you can mine out of, out of uh, people and their connections to this movie. I'm glad that I could talk about it because it's a movie that I love dearly and it's a movie that I, you know, I know I can always revisit and always fall back in love with. And there's always something new that you can, uh, that you can focus on and, and take away from it. So yeah, long, long live Lord of the Rings, man. For sure, for sure. We didn't even mention New Zealand. Part of what does a lot of the heavy lifting for Lord of the Rings is that they shot it in New Zealand, which is now the entire world sees as like, the, the magical Lord of the Rings place we have to go visit. Like, <laughs> yeah, the, their economy apparently is like sustained off of like Hobbiton and like Lord of the Rings uh, attractions. But I think my favorite, I think my final thought on it will be my favorite bit of, because you do have, what's your favorite bit of trivia? I don't remember if it was Billy Boyd or Elijah Wood or who, somebody that they, they I remember mean, read, read an interview with one of them and they said, let me tell you a story. I'm sitting in Peter Jackson's house. And he goes, come here, let me show you something. And there's a door, there's this like hidden secret door and you take it and you walk through this tunnel for a long, long time. And they're like, where are you taking me, Peter? And you come out of that tunnel and you're standing in Frodo's house. Like his house has a tunnel to the set that still exists somewhere secretly of Frodo's house. And that's, that's forever. Peter Jackson forever has that. And that's 
pretty magical and, <laughs> and amazing. And that's that's, that's the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. We love it. I'm so glad we got to talk about it. Where can people find you and, and your show, which everyone should go listen to? I enjoy it immensely. I can't wait for it to come back. Thank you, man. I do really appreciate that. Uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Larry Freed. I am the host and creator of a show called My Favorite Movie Is, uh, which is dedicated to helping filmmakers make somebody's next favorite movie. We sit down with fellow uh, filmmakers and storytellers and talk to them about their all-time favorite films or, you know, whatever comes closest. And uh, we talk to them about their experiences with it, how it has tangibly changed them and shaped their lives. And through those experiences, we articulate some techniques and mindsets that we can take away um, into our own work. Uh, and apply that to uh, whatever stories that we're trying to tell, but especially for filmmakers. You can find my podcast wherever you get your podcasts, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, the whole bunch. Uh, if you are interested in listening, uh, please go check us out there. We're also on YouTube. Um, and we also have a website, uh, www.mfmipodcast.com. Uh, my favorite movie is mfmipodcast.com. Uh, we hope to see you there go do that people it's a uh, uh well worth your time and a, a very good listen it, it's it is that time of the episode as i do every episode where i press the magic button to see what next week's movie chosen completely at random from everything streaming will be i'm betting it's not as good as lord of the rings pressing the magic button now next week's <laughs> oh my god mm -hmm. next week's movie is bigfoot versus the illuminati from oh my goodness from 2020 it is on would you know it to be so <laughs> that is everyone's homework for next week should you choose to accept it uh, other than going and listening uh, to my favorite movie is yeah bigfoot versus it, it appears to be a cgi animated uh, i don't even know oh from the maker of trump versus the illuminati well this is going to be good oh boy i'm so glad that i caught you when you were talking about lord of the rings <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't inflict that on you. You're a classy, you're a classy individual. I got friends for this shit. Uh, <laughs> Bigfoot versus the Illuminati on Tubi. Everybody, go. I'd say go watch it, but really, probably don't. Just come back and listen to me make fun of it. Um, I am, as always, uh, at Heath Lambert seventy eight on Twitter. The show is that's so random. P two. The show has a email address that's so random pod at gmail dot com for all of your complaints and grievances artwork for the show by joe humphrey who is at mr joe humphrey on twitter go check out his stuff and once i'll say it once again go listen to my favorite movie is there's not a ton of episodes to get through so it doesn't take too long to get through it and the show is back when do you know ish uh we plan to return in the spring uh so really within a matter within a matter of weeks we haven't released an official uh return date yet but we got 10 episodes uh that are pretty dang good uh, but just know that the show is going to sound uh, even better. You know, we're adding some new things, trying out some new formats. Uh, we're really excited for uh, the next round of episodes, which will likely happen within the next um, two months or so. Well, I look forward to that, and everyone else should too. Uh, that will do it for this week. On behalf of myself and Larry, uh, goodbye and have a very good week. Bye, everybody. <laughs>